Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the Vice President of Media and Editorial at the club. And we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We are busy planning our first in-person events in more than a year, so keep an eye out for reopening news from our headquarters in San Francisco. In the meantime, we are continuing to do all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 500 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as video and audio of our past events at commonwealthclub.org. Now, for those of you who join, are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed here are those of the speakers and not the Commonwealth Club. And now it's my pleasure to hand this off to Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Great to see you, John, and it sounds very exciting. Sounds like in the near future, I'll be able to see you and see those of you who are in the Bay Area for an in-live program soon. So that's very exciting. Thanks so much for joining us tonight for Black AAPI Trans Solidarity Roundtable Discussion. And thanks to the Commonwealth Club and the Transgender District of San Francisco for bringing together a roundtable discussion of thought leaders from across the nation to speak openly about their unique experiences regarding race, gender, gender identity, and the intersection of it all. And we hope that after this program, we can provide some context, some connection, and some solidarity between all three communities that have far too often been pit pitted against each other. And so it's my honor to introduce to you our panel this evening, Andy Mara, is a Korean-American trans woman, an activist, and the executive director for the Transgender Legal Defense Fund. Aluchi Omioga, who's a transmasculine advocate and co-director of BLMP, Black LGBT Migrants Project. Diamond Styles, transgender activist and also the host of Marsha's Plate Podcast, also the executive director of Black Trans Women, Inc. in Houston, Texas. And finally, Juniper Yoon, who's a Korean-American artist, program associate for the Transgender District. Thank you all so much for joining us for this important conversation. I think we'll jump right into it tonight, or today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. He was murdered by former police officer Derek Chauvin. And so I think, you know, we can go around the uh, round table here and share a point or two about how we have been as activists within our community as uh, black trans GNC activists and POC trans activists, we've been calling for police reform and or protesting police brutality um, for the longest time. We've been at the forefront of this and it's been part of the fight for us all. So kick us off. Um, how about Andy? Good evening, everyone, it, or good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be um, with you all today. Um, you know, in light of the anniversary of the shooting of George Floyd, um, and also in the context of it being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, next month is Pride. Um, I I often look to history to ground and center um, not just my lived experience, but also my activism in the movement. And I think about not just Stonewall. I think oftentimes um, our movement and our community points to Stonewall because of it being uh, a direct action in response to anti-queer, anti-trans um, <clears throat> visibility um, and activity, um, and particularly pr police brutality against our communities, particularly against black and brown trans folks, black and brown trans women. But I also point to Compton's Cafeteria um, in the Bay, which occurred right before Stonewall. And for myself as a trans woman, a trans Asian woman, um, I also know that there are experiences and moments in history that predate Stonewall and, the Com and Compton's Cafeteria. I look at law enforcement in this country and how they've uh, sought to criminalize our, our lived experiences, our bodies, and there was a photo of a friend of mine, a loke, posted um, not too long ago of a person by the name of Nathan Hahn. Nath we don't know how Nathan identified um, on the spectrum of gender, but we do know that Nathan was arrested um, simply for wearing women's clothing. And that occurred in 1940 
when police were very, very um, vigilant in attacking and criminalizing folks that, that stood against the gender binary or gender norms. Um, and we fast forward to the present and we're still tackling the same issues that are impacting black and brown trans folks across this country. Um, for me, as the executive director of TILDEF, um, there are a number of matters that we have taken on to directly address, um, not just interactions with law enforcement, anti-trans interactions with law enforcement, but also in thinking about how many of our um, folks in our community are locked up and thrown into prison and jails and experience incredible amounts of violence. And so I just, just to wrap up, I want to say that even though we have, we can point to examples of Stonewall, which in many ways serve as, as rallying cries for our movement and our community, particularly at this time of the year, it's also a reminder of how far we still have to go and how our experiences are tied to the broader racial and social justice movements um, that, are, that are gaining momentum um, in the country today. What I would want to add is this has been something that's, of course, like she just said, it's been going on. I remember um, in 2008, it's just um, our cases are ignored. In 2008, Dewana Johnson was in a police precinct, like in the jail, handcuffed, sitting down, and the police officer on video camera, camera bust her in the mouth with uh, handcuffs on his fist on camera, the only reason why we know about it is because somebody cared enough to leak the video out of the police department, and it went viral in Memphis. A month later, she was found murdered. In 2017, we have Kiwi Heron. She is a trans woman that was getting into it with her homophobic neighbors who were taunting and teasing her, throwing homophobic slurs at her. And she has three children in her home and she comes out and she, she was fed up and they get in the argument. Police come, police shoot her. Killer. Then we have Bianca, um, Brianna Hill in Kansas city. She was in May 2019 attacked by two officers on camera <laughs> on camera beat face split open bloody crazy that was in may in october she was found murdered we don't march for these because they don't fit the perfect um black excellence they don't fit what george floyd um, represent this cishet black man. Of course, he's nobody is a perfect victim, but when it comes to marginal, marginal, marginalized people, being a cishet male makes you a perfect victim for, for people to look at and protest for and, and say, oh my God, let's go to the streets because somebody like me or somebody like Juniper or anybody on this on this panel, we don't fit a perfect victim narrative that that we represent our community with this high esteem. So they're not going to go to march for us, but we are on the front lines of the battle with police brutality because we are the most exposed to their hate, exposed to their racism, exposed to their transphobia, exposed to their homophobia, whatever the the qualms of the world is if the, if this police officer holds it <laughs> we're gonna get the brunt of that because you know that's just how just how being marginalized works so we have been on the front lines of this we have been not just like like she just said not just stonewall um but this is just this is just what happens in in our world but we don't have the protection of the community to go to bat for us I want to follow up with that in the sense that I think there's this aspect in particular to trans bodies. Um, we often see within different communities that face um, violent crimes um, attached to police brutality and outside of police brutality. Um, that idea that, again, the victim has to be in some ways perfect. I feel in particular to race and to gender, 
and to gender presentation, um, particularly trans folks of color, black trans women, brown trans women. Our world that we live in immediately from the moment we don a dress, um, from the moment that we walk out in the streets and we get clocked, uh, or we don't get clocked and we get like found out in different ways, we are demonized and our bodies are no longer seen as human and we are no longer humanized. And I think that there is a benefit particular to um, white folk as well as folks who are non-trans, who are cisgender, in the sense that there's always going to be someone seeking to humanize their bodies. And frequently it is our own brethren in the TGNC community um, who are brethren and like siblings who have to actively fight towards the humanization of our deaths, um, which is just, it's just absurd in some ways. Um, I also want to point towards a racial aspect of policing that, um, policing in itself, like I'm actually an advocate of abolition of police. I don't believe police protect uh, folks of any community of color, particularly uh, black, the black community, they were actually created as a way to continue the harm um, post the slave trade um, against black bodies. So the idea of police reform for me is intrinsically um, kind of marred by the historic roots of it being a racist practice. Um, and I think for the Asian American community, particularly, uh, I feel heartened in some ways with the reactions of many of my API uh, community members, particularly in the trans and gender nonconforming community, with the with the uprisings that happened after George Floyd's uh, passing, in the sense that there was an act, many acts of solidarity with the Black and Brown communities, um, which is kind of a foil to a very, very, a far too often case of the 1992 Rodney King case, um, which I feel was an experiment in some ways of our communities turning against each other, when in reality we should be facing um, the overarching like detriment of white supremacy. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, for everyone, my name is Luce, if any pronouns. Um, I actually live in Minneapolis. I'm actually in Minneapolis right now. Um, and my second hat that I wear is the um, one of the co-founders and core team members of Black Visions, who was in the middle of the uprisings last year during the George Floyd uprisings and beyond. I think what was interesting is um, throughout even just like Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives in the last six years, um, apologies, there's probably protests and things happening outside, but um, throughout all of the last seven years, um, a lot of people don't actually know that the main people who have been leading a lot of these protests, a lot of these mobilizations have been queer women and trans non-binary black folks, right? So when we look at the people who are actually on the ground, just like we can in Stonewall, just like we can in many, many different uprisings and um, movements that we have, we see those who are most marginalized are actually leading the fight towards liberation. Um, so even when we think about the uprisings last year, um, I have, organizing hot homies all over the world. I have organizing homies in Atlanta, um, people all over in like DC. And a lot of the people that were leading these acts are queer people, are non-binary, are trans women, are black trans women. Um, and they're not actually getting the recognition that's necessary. Uh, Minneapolis has a very interesting history. Um, in 2012, we had Cece McDonald who was jailed and put in a men's prison um, in the city of Minneapolis. Um, in 2015, we had the killing of Jamar Clark. Um, in 2016, we had the killing of Philando Castile. Um, in 2020, obviously we had the murder of George Floyd. Um, and then another little, another interesting thing that happened around the uprisings that a lot of people actually don't talk about was in St. Paul, which is the sister city of Minneapolis, um, there was a black trans woman by the name of Yana Dior who was um, out protesting and actually got terrorized and beaten by a group of mainly black men. Um, and this is because Yana um, is a trans woman. Um, right. So we had uprisings all over about don't kill us, stop killing us. I can't breathe all of these things while we are actually killing our, our black trans sisters at the same exact time. Um, 
So I think it's interesting when we talk about just like the movements that we are building up and that we are literally a part of and how when the same thing happens to us, the, the cisgender black community is nowhere to be found. Um, and why is that? It's because we can see our liberation tied in George Floyd, in Mike Brown, in Tamir Rice, in Philando Castile, and in Jamar Clark, but they can't find their liberation in Sandra Bland, in Rakia Boyd, in Cece McDonald, and in Iana Dior, right? So I think what we actually have to do is how do we talk about how my liberation is intrinsic to cisgender folks and how actually we have to stand up and uplift Black trans women in order to be free? I want to add to um, the discussion. I think there are a couple points there that sometimes in mainstream media, or I should say a lot of the times, you know, I think the, the narratives get confused or the mainstream media kind of puts together these stories that I, I don't think, actually, what I'm trying to say is I think they truly do divide our communities in a lot of ways. And so when we talk about, you know, fighting for Black lives, for, for example, uh, the media will also then say, you know, when you are anti-police or you're not pro-police, then you're fighting for black lives. As if, right, when we call for police reform, it's only about black lives. I think it's about a lot of our vulnerable communities, as all of you have pointed out. And so when we talk about um, state-sanctioned violence, for example, you know, the, under the umbrella of who gets impacted are uh, black people, black trans women, immigrants, migrants, which are people of color. And so I'd love for uh, all of you, if you would like, you know, to discuss that state sanctioned violence, systemic racism, and how this all really moves us to be pitted against each other, as I'd mentioned in the introduction. I think in particular, if it's okay, I'd like to um, kind of dive in more um, I wanted to also respond to Aluchi's commentary. I think there's this aspect within the communities of color and then the Black community, um, as you stated, Michelle, this idea that the hyper-focusing on police reform, abolition, um, rectification of misdeeds is really focused on, um, in response to the Black community's outcries of incredible violence. Um, and we ignore the fact that there are acts of violence that exist in our own communities of color that are at the hands of police. Um, and with the idea of seeing the police as the antithesis towards the liberation of all peoples and seeing that Black trans women, particularly Black trans femmes, as the indicator, the first stepping point where we need to empower those folks first and foremost to even begin the work of actually even addressing any issue when it comes to inequities within society as well as within policing. I think that frequently we, we also see that Black trans women and Black trans femmes and trans feminine and trans women people, uh, women of color um, not only are just brutalized by police and by different community members, but the act, the actual word of policed, um, it reminds me back to when it was criminalized to even carry condoms on you to protect yourself from HIV. Many like sex workers who are in that in the TGNC community would be arrested, and the majority of those um, were Black trans women. And then it goes into the idea of policing leading to incarceration, which I think there's this streamlined understanding that policing is not for the people. It is actually actively harming the people that we are trying to uplift. So as a result, we cannot be liberated. Yeah, I wanted to expand on that because I was actually literally going to say the same thing. I think there's a difference between like when we talk about policing as an institution, as like the police, and then policing as a practice of how we police each other. Um, and I think that's what you were talking about, Juniper, around just like what are the ways in which like we actually perpetuate the system of policing by policing each other's bodies, by policing each other's expression, identities, all of these things. And I, I specifically, as someone who is an immigrant, I think about the way in which we police migrants and specifically how we police migration for po people of color, 
right? Because white people can can migrate anywhere and it's fine. Europeans can go anywhere and it's fine. But the moment that a person of color wants to leave due to colonization and racial capitalism most of the times, because we don't just leave our home countries because we want to. We leave because, because of imperialism and homophobia. We leave because our islands are getting fucking drowned because of the racial capitalism that's happening. But like all that's to say, like the way that we police immigrants, right? We say you can only move here for this certain amount of time. You are not a citizen. You do not get these types of benefits. You do not get these types of benefits. And only like refugees get these things. Asylum seekers are a different thing. So just like, yeah, just how policing upholds the state and like literally like policing is not for the people. Um, And like disrupting police is also disrupting the way in which we police each other. Um, and it's, it goes hand in hand, because just because we get rid of police in the same way that we have police doesn't mean that the, the violence is not going to be perpetuated from an interpersonal level, from an intracommunal level, or anything like that. So when we're talking about like solidarity, we're talking about how do we talk about anti-Blackness in the Asian community? How do we talk about um, xenophobia, right? How do we talk about transphobia? How do we talk about homophobia? And all of those systems that we use to police each other. And that's actually how we get to true solidarity between Black folks, between Asian folks, between trans folks and cis folks and all of these things. And then when when we talk about really not, allowing history to repeat itself. Anytime we have an economic downturn, when the capitalistic ventures of the left and the right are failing, and we have so many things economically that are just like, oh my God, things are getting out of control. Politicians and rhetoric usually scapegoat to minorities or immigrants, or they always blame. They have some type of narrative that blames us. When we talk about, um, you know, recent times, we because we're we're young folks, relatively, <laughs> um, you know, we we hear about how um, Latinx um, immigrants are taking jobs and da 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 da. da. Back in the eighties, um, there were particularly um, a, up, a, a uptick, just like we see right now when with this economic thing happening, where there was Asian violence that was happening. I remember um, Vincent Chen literally was killed because they said he was, they thought he actually was Chinese, he was Chinese, but he, they thought he was Japanese. And they thought that because of where they worked, the the car company because this was in the midwest the car company um was failing because economics was going down blah 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 blah, and they and everybody was blaming it on the japanese and so because this was an immigrant this was a person that um they assumed was japanese just because you know all asians are the same (laughs) they actually killed this man because of the blame that was being told because of his life. And then when we think about the dot busters in, um, was it Atlanta City? I can't remember exactly where that's at, where they they had attacked, attacked a South Asian person. And so for me, these, 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 this type of uptick is just a repeat of history. And so this is just a perfect example of how, you know, we have seen this before. This is not new. Pandemic, this is a new pandemic. But when we talk about how people are responding to it, these uptick in trans legislations, these uptick in how they are attacking us and why they are attacking us and the motivations of why they are attacking us, this is this is not new. And another thing I want to kind of t- want to kind of point out, I, w- I was doing um, some research for the Houston Area Police Department here because they were... Um, you know that we Texas is now the epicenter of in the past five years trans death, and I'm based in Texas, and we have the the highest number of deaths trans deaths here. And while of course we know Black trans women dominate um, the list of murders, and it's usually intimate partner homicide, there was something that I noticed when I looked at trans masculine deaths who were trans in that time. If you look at all the trans deaths within the past five years that are trans masculine, 40% of them were killed by police. So in this conversation about police, I want to really kind of make sure we are not silencing the trans masculine experience when it comes to um, this discussion around transness and police, because 
when you look at those numbers and it was usually about like a mental health check-in that they were that they were it wasn't about like a criminal and da 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 it was literally sometimes i'm just i need a check-in because there's some type of mental health and we know the the high rates of suicide when it comes to trans men we know trans masculine individuals so when we think about that you people are not even coming to protect people that need protection and y'all coming to kill our men too so i wanted to kind of share that um statistic that i saw when i was doing the research and i just i I just think it's ridiculous so that's why i i'm all about abolishing but we know that that can't happen right now but today we can reform we can defund we can change shift the money and that can be a step in the right direction of abolishing i guess to to round it out i I mean there i kind of want to build off of that that thread that um diamond was was laying out i think you know in, in reflecting on the shooting of George Floyd, there were a number of other, there were a number of other killings as well last year. And I, I think most particularly about like Tony McDade, who was gunned down by police, a black trans man in Tallahassee, Florida. Like there is, there are direct connections where black and brown trans folks are being targeted by police. And I think in, in when we talk about state sanctioned violence, you know, I, I look at in New York, there, um, uh, last year, the Walking Wall Trans Bill um, was passed where, you know, prior to 2020, um, mostly black and brown trans women um, were being profiled by police simply for, you know, just simply walking down the streets. And uh, law enforcement, particularly NYPD, would demand to search um uh, purses or bags or belongings of trans folks that were just simply minding their business, going about their days to see if they had condoms on them. And often police would, exactly to what Juniper was raising earlier, would use condoms as evidence that they were conducting sex work and prosecute them. It, I think if we were to zoom out, um, our bodies are under attack. Trans bodies are under attack and they have been for so long. Um, You know, there was the mention of the record number of anti-trans bills that have popped up in state legislatures across the country, close to 100 in more than 30 states. And one of the common threads among all of those anti-trans bills was state legislatures seeking to criminalize gender-affirming care for trans folks, particularly our youngest ones in our communities. And again, it goes back to this idea that the state wants to sanction and criminalize our bodies. Um, The last thing I I do wanna add, because I am a history buff and I think it is important to lift up examples of black and Asian solidarity, is that we are all that we have. And I don't think we often, when we engage in these conversations, Um, and particularly in mainstream media, there is a disinterest or apathy about talking about examples of Black and Asian solidarity throughout the course of US history. And whether we talk about moments like the Chinese Exclusion Act where Frederick Douglass went on record to denounce um, this anti-immigration law to uh, examples of uh, Asian, prominent Asian civil rights activists like Yuri Kuchiyama or Grace Lee Boggs showing up um, in the civil rights movements and working alongside folks like Malcolm X and Black Panthers to Black folks stepping out and protesting um, the Vietnam War and how folks in Vietnam were being bombed simply for um, the liberation um, and the freedom of their state for self-determination. So I I just want to lift up and say that Despite examples of state-sanctioned violence, despite the wedges that white supremacy and those that perpetuate white supremacy um, uh, seek to divide communities of color, there are still strong examples of how our communities have shown up for one another and have struggled together on a number of issues, including um, against state-sanctioned violence. Thank you so much, Andy. And I would have to add to that. I mean, the resilience of the trans GNC community, no matter, you know, how, 
how much the violence or how much trauma we go uh, through as a community, we're always rising up to the occasion to continue to fight no matter what. And um, so I don't also want to take away the fact that it, it is traumatic and it is hard work. Uh, let's turn our attention to the Atlanta shooting in which um, allegedly a white guy targeted and shot Asian massage parlors killing eight people. And I have to say allegedly, I don't know where the case is at right now, but eight people died and six of whom were Asian women. And there were many narratives that fled that floated around mainstream media, but one of the arguments that all of us on this panel know all too well is the intersection of racism and sexism. You all have been talking about it for the past half hour, but basically how it contributes to a culture of violence against gender, against um, people of color, against, of course, as we had stated, you know, transgender nonconforming folks. And it's a perpetuation, it's a cycle that keeps happening. Um, but I definitely was very disappointed that, that, that this was an opportunity, I think, for a lot of cisgender people, especially those, you know, who've, I don't want to say jumped on the bandwagon, but jumped on the bandwagon of progressive causes. We're talking about women's rights issues or the, uh, you know, decriminalization of sex work, but left trans women out of the conversation. And so let's create space here and let's talk about you know, fetishizing uh, women, trans women, Asian women, objectifying women, the hypersexualization, and all of it leading to racialized misogyny and uh, ultimately uh, violence within our communities. When I, my first response to hearing about that was, First of all, like sadness, of course, but just to hear about how some of them were living in this, the massage parlor, um, to hear some of the families who um, some of them knew about the sex work and some of them didn't know about the sex work. Um, some of them are still not admitting that their loved one was per- participating in sex work and some of them you know are and just the responses to that and I was like even the shame around sex work and the criminalization and that it it just it, for me I remember being in that vulnerable spot as an ex-sex worker I remember being in that spot where I was at the whim of either a client or at the or at the mercy of a, a police officer because what people kind of don't also don't talk about when we talk about sex work is how even in that regards police don't actually protect and serve because yes you know the men are getting shot and killed da, 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 da. but when you bring the intersection of racism and sexism within the context of being criminalized about sex work you also are vulnerable not to get murdered but also be to be sexually assaulted if you are a woman or female bodied or whatever kind of body that they feel like they can use and um you know, be fetishized. It it also make us vulnerable to police in that kind of way. They can threaten to lock us up. They can, you know, if we don't give them head, we just we just heard about the guy, the Asian and I think it was Asian and white guy who was um, um, raping all those black women in Ohio and finally got caught. Um, you know, in in that in that regards, I just it 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 was a tender spot for me because I know how vulnerable we are, we are, and it's mainly because we don't have um, the economic <laughs> the economic um, opportunities that other people have, and so it just it just it was a very very tender spot for me, and especially when they were naming their ages. These are particularly older women in sex work, particularly older. And so just imagining being uh, being of a certain age and still having to deal with clients, it just was all so much for me. I just, I, you know, it just was a very, very tender spot for me. I um, want to kind of follow up on that sense of vulnerability with the situation um, I think there was a sense in the immediacy of seeing um, these kind of dichotomies of narratives being played out, like the complete erasure of the aspect of sex work being 
a factor in this, the erasure of like Asian desirability politics being taken out of the picture. Even the argument of like, was this man a white supremacist or not? Was this man just mentally ill? Um, and I think it's one of those moments that, um, particular to sex work and folks who work in that field. Exactly. And I think um, there's this idea that there is a need for constant access to a body that is not even held and cared for by the society that leads it to being an object of sale. And I think in this scenario and how it loops into trans sex work and how Diamond, you pointed out like many states and many jurisdictions still do not criminalize police officers for having sex with people they book. Like police officers, it's not even a, a consideration. Like if they book someone and have sex with them, it's not considered a crime in many different municipalities and many different cities and states even. Um, there's a, at a federal level, an injustice in that way um, that is allowing these entities an incredible amount of power over bodies that are already undermined and erased um, the work that they do because sex work is work. It is something that is very difficult. It is hard. It is draining. It is everything in between. It's as nuanced as everyday work, as someone who is a coal miner, as someone who is an office worker. There are good days, there are bad days. But I think what is not talked about in this scenario, or even erased, is the aspect that, as we were saying before, these were not perfect victims. And as a result, they were not worthy of grieving over. And I think that's also boiling down to an issue of what I'd say, visibility and the narratives we build as a society and historically coming from, you know, a largely Catholic population or like Christian population in America of like not wanting to see that as acceptable. When you watch television shows like Law and Order SVU, just another dead hooker type of scenario. It's just like, they don't even name these folks and it's seen as a spectacle in some ways. It's seen as funny. And I think that was a hard portion while also seeing my my face, my mother's face and these victims, um, knowing that one of the victims had two young young sons and like um, being a trans woman, uh, Korean American trans woman who, you know, seeing myself in that scenario, both as the woman and as one of the the children, it was just, it was really hard to process in that moment. Looping back into the actual topic at hand, I think there is a long history, even in the Asian American community, of not recognizing that the very fact that many of our ancestors that did come here, that our diaspora came here because of sex work, we were only able to exist and survive and carry on our stories because of it. It has allowed us to exist in the spaces that we do. And I think that the first thing that I want folks to start realizing is the value that that has that many, many women, cis or trans or everything in between, like have done to be in the places that we're at today. And that work has value. And I think that's something that's just harder for me to see as like, it's just constantly erased. And it was the first thing that I was like, what is happening with this situation? I, I just want to echo what Juniper said. I think that when the news started to break in mainstream media, um, because it was the day after, Korean language media had already picked up on the story in Atlanta. Um, and uh, mainstream media, a day later, started to actively report on the shooting. Um, and share tidbits of the experiences of these of these women. Um, you can't help but, at least for myself, think about our mothers, like thinking about my umma, thinking about my emos or my aunts, um, and 
what was ironic about that day was on the same the very same day that mainstream media started to pick up on um, the shootings it was also the day that the senate judiciary committee was hearing the equality act and i point to that example not to talk about the equality act per se but to point out the fact that many of the folks that work in massage parlors are actively engaged in the informal economy. And it's not because necessarily it's, it's their first choice of employment or how they're going to bring home, um, you know, a paycheck to feed their, to feed themselves and to feed their families. It's out of survival and queer and trans folks of color know that experience. When I think about the clients that we serve at Tildeath, you know, close to 60% of our clients identify as trans folks of color. Um, more than 50, close to 55% of our clients live below the federal poverty line. And just to get, just to be clear, that's living on less than $12,000 a year. And we don't need to read, we don't even need to read between the lines, at least for myself, because I know that the vast majority of those folks are likely engaged in the informal economy, whether it's survival sex work or something else to hustle and to make money to feed themselves or to pay for their cell phone or to um, make sure that they can um, afford to get on public transportation. Our communities on a day-to-day -day basis know what it means to live in an informal economy. On the flip side of that, and I think that this is especially true for our community and the broader communities that we're, we're tied to, and Juniper laid this out really beautifully, I often think about as a Korean person and being a part of this diaspora, I'm very proud of the fact that in, in my community and amongst my ancestors, there is a strong legacy of poor folks, women, sex workers organizing for social justice movements throughout our history. I think about the March One movement, which was the first moment in Korean history where Koreans actively started to organize against the occupation and colonization by Imperial Japan. And I specifically name that because some of the first folks to organize were folks engaged in the informal economy and likely sex workers. So knowing that that's my history and knowing that my proximity to, to that, that kind of history and how it intersects with the activism that I and I'm sure all of us do on a day-to-day -day basis, like that's what keeps me grounded and hopeful. Um, especially when there's so many stories to point to of trauma and loss, I know that the ones that are really going to get us across the finish lines are the very ones that are most marginalized um, because of because of the circumstances tied to transphobia, tied to xenophobia, tied to nativism, tied to racism and white supremacy. Let me add this because I think this is really important in in right after that because this is why it's important not to invest in the model minority myth because it not only privileges you, but it also harms you because that model minority myth about Asians makes it would make people believe that y'all have it going on. Y'all smart, y'all making money, da, 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 da. But that also illegitimizes the stories you just actually explained the poor folks the the people who are actually struggling because of racism who are actually struggling because of their culture and coming over here and dealing with white supremacy who are actually struggling against these systems as well and so i know growing up that model minority myth in my culture made it seem like y'all had privileges and yes they do give you privileges if you if you invest in it, but it also harms the people who do not fit a particular narrative, that particular model minority myth narrative. And so investing in that does just as much harm as it does with privileging. So you got to acknowledge that as well. And I just wanted to, I, th I think that's perfect because it wasn't until I got older that I learned about the struggle of Asian people and, and you know, and the people who 
didn't who didn't have that who didn't um who didn't invest in white supremacy. Cause that's the idea is you, you gotta come over here and invest in code switch and get rid of your culture and talk white and da, 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 da. And I saw a lot of Asian people doing that, but I also learned in my older years that there were people who weren't doing that, who's bucking up against that system the same way that I was. And those are the people who I like to be in solidarity with because that's the people who I can trust. Because sometimes when you got those people who are investing in white supremacy and doing those type of things, you, can ne- you can't trust them you can't trust that they're going to have your back in the same way somebody who struggles with you and alongside you does i plus one i mean i think that the biggest travesty as an asian american in this country is that one we don't talk about how the model minority myth is a mechanism of white supremacy and it was intentionally used by white people in this country to create divisions among black and brown communities. And a lot of it had to do with widening gaps of inequality. And so I think practically speaking, white people were scared. And so they decided very intentionally to invest in this myth to, to divide black and Asian folks in particular and to create this wedge picking one minority over another to say, oh, look at them, they're so smart. When in reality, when you look at the numbers, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a a a PhD to look at the numbers and see that. When you look at the numbers in Asian American community, many of us are poor, many of us are not college educated, many of us do not have access to a social safety net. And one of the biggest issues that we face is economics, is, is true economic security. And so the biggest travesty that I am pointing to is one, the the lack of memory, the loss of memory around that reality, but also that there are some in our community who continue to perpetuate that myth. And I think a lot of it has to do with this fear of being associated with with what, where we we once were or where our ancestors once came from. So I, Plus one, Diamond. I completely agree. I literally was about to say the same thing Diamond was. Um, But yeah, I think for me, I apologize. I know we have like 10 minutes left, so I'll make this quick. Um, Yeah, the the biggest thing for me, especially when everything was coming out um, around the shooting, was, um, yeah, just how the left, quote unquote, handled it. Um, like erasing the fact that um, these people were sex workers, erasing the fact um, that they were engaging in like um, survival economics um, and like really just trying to be like, oh, no, this was a white supremacist, but they didn't do anything wrong. They were like the perfect immigrants. They came here, all of these things. And like upholding this model minority myth, like if they were engaging in sex work, then their life didn't matter, right? Like, or if they were engaging in survival economics then their life didn't matter, when in reality their life mattered regardless um, and they were engaging in those for survival. So like, what does it actually look like for the left or people who are quote unquote for progressive liberation to actually talk about the reasons why immigrants, the reasons why trans folks, the reasons why black people engage in um, underground economies um, I, I think Andy said a, a different a different phrasing for the same words, but um, I, I use underground economies or what, what's the what's the phrase that you use? Andy, I probably like that a little bit more. Informal economies, we can use that too. Um, so why are people engaged in informal economies in the first place, right? Because of capitalism. Um, and that, I think that also specifically leads to like every time we talk about policing. I'm sorry for bringing back to policing, but we talk about policing. They're like, what if someone breaks into your house? It's like, okay, why are people breaking into houses in the first place? Because they don't have resources. Why don't they have resources? Because we're giving all the resources to the fucking police, right? So like all of these things stem under white supremacy and capitalism and how those two things intersect. I think the other thing is like, we are told under white supremacy that anyone that is not white is not valued. We are told under the patriarchy, anyone that is not a man is not valued. So when we think about the attacks that were happening on the Asian women, um, they are women of color, they are also not valued. And their sex workers, even less valued, right? Um, And just like, how do we actually have conversations around how the systems of oppression even 
um, show up in media and the media attention that we get, right? Diamond talked about how, like, during the uprisings of George Floyd, all of these things were happening, but there was many people that died in 2020. Um, Tony McDade being one of them, uh, a black trans man in Tallahassee, right? Um, so just thinking about just, like, how are we talking about things and how are we using um, our oppressions and the acts of violence that the state is sanctioned to actually propel true liberation while centering those at the margins and not letting people, like not leaving people out. Cause that's what happens in these conversations is that we don't talk about trans folks that are, that are um, engaging in um, informal economies. We're not talking about um, people who might be selling drugs to get by or whatever. Um, and we're, we're trying to uplift or like make this story about, oh, they were perfect. And that's why this is happening, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what is actually, what does perfection actually mean? Thank you so much. And then you're right. Yes, we only have 10 minutes or so left. We could go a lot longer, um, but let's spend the last few minutes talking about what solidarity actually looks like. I know that uh, some of you have already mentioned some examples, but just to kind of conclude our conversation, not just like true, sol- I mean, you know, solidarity, but inclusive solidarity, like, like you had said, Aluchi, not, we can give some examples of some solutions, but it's not necessarily a solution if we continue to leave people out of the conversation. Um, Juniper, would you like to kick us off? Absolutely. I think um, in particular to our communities um, with this situation and the idea that historically we have been pitted against each other, I think that that action in itself has the root of a fear of white supremacy and a recognition of our power as communities of color, as Black as a Black folk, as uh, trans and gender nonconforming folk. And I think that when we recognize that aspect, that fear coming from a system that is oppressing all of us, that we are all rallying against, it should remind us that we are all in the same path towards liberation. And I think secondarily, I want this to kind of expand not only, you know, particular to the nation of the United States, but on a global scale, the kind of recognition that we share all the same world. And while we may not share the same experience, we are all, we are all basically affected by the streams of white supremacy, of capitalism, of imperialism and colonization. And that, by us all trying to move against each other, we're actually stopping any forward progress. And I think my hope is that, and the thing that I hold on to as like a centering aspect is that I already know historically that these stories that are behind us, it tells us that the folks that are alongside of us that are black trans sisters, our black trans masculine folk, our API brothers and sisters and siblings in the TGNC community, we are all at the front lines all the time and we're there and we show up and we show through. So I think that as long as we continue that progress with the understanding that we need to unwork those historic acts of pitting us against each other, recognize them and uplift each other, I think we'll all be able to make reform and changes in a meaningful way for folks in the future and for the folks who have passed in the past. Yeah, I can follow that up. I think uh, co-sign everything Juniper always says, but um, yeah, really just around like, I think that as trans people of color, um, because we share very similar intersections, it's very easy for us to understand um, and know that our liberations are intrinsically intertwined. Um, and I think it's really like, what is the, the deep like political education um, that's necessary in our communities so that folks who are cis, like folks, um, yeah, can actually understand like, yes, my liberation is tied into yours. Um, 
I think about all the discourse that was happening during the uprisings. Um, my roommate at the time um, is Hmong American, so they're Southeast Asian. Um, and just like the, the conversations that they were having with their own family around just like anti-Blackness, right? That is solidarity work. Like that is deep solidarity work that they're doing to undo the racism and the white supremacy that is happening within their own community. So like those little microcosms get us to a larger place where we can actually have conversations around how these these bigger systems specifically harm our communities, but how those how that harm also affects other communities as well, right? So when we talk about like the the backlash that we saw to Chinese Americans and you know Asian Americans during the COVID crisis in March, in February, and April, right? We can we can explicitly say this is an instance of white supremacy and it's also an instance of xenophobia, right? And like. The black, the black immigrant community can say, okay, xenophobia, what does that actually look like within our community and vice versa? So understanding like when instances of violence happen, they are never just in a silo. They always affect other communities. And how do we actually talk about those things and have conversations within our own communities about what's happening? I always, uh, when I was thinking about this conversation, I always was making an analogy with my transness. When when I um, affirmed and said, I am transitioning, this is what I'm going to do. There were actual actions that I thought that not my own particular transness is not, you know, and not everybody transits in the same way, but my own particular transness, there were actions that I had to take in order to constantly <laughs> be the woman that I am. And so when I think about that and do that, use that as an analogy, when it comes to being in solidarity with me, um, I feel like as uh, an ABI person, there has to be constant action that you need to do that allows me to know that you are in solidarity with me. You have to let me know by your actions. It cannot be performative. It cannot be just you talking and saying the right words and using the um, woke words like intersectionality and all that. You can't just say it. It has to actually be actions that you are actually doing to prove to me that you are in solidarity with me because particularly me down here in the little old south in Houston we don't we don't have the history of um a lot of Asian people that align with us. We actually have the opposite. They were in bed with the Republicans, with Louis Welsh, when they were doing gerrymandering and da-da-da-da. They were actually funding Republicans. They were actually um, building infrastructure with Republicans against Black people. And so... Be, being that that is the history, there ha- I know as an adult, <laughs> as an adult who experiences life, that that is not the blanket and monolithic narrative of all Asians. So I have to be cautious and say, hey, if you are on my team, I need to see it. I need to see you at the marches for your people and my people. I need to see you at the marches for queer folks. I need to see you at the marches for black folks. I need to see you at the marches for trans people. I need to see you at the actions that are being taken and doing your motherfucking part. Because if you're doing your part, I see you and I can tell that you are in solidarity with me. If you're just talking or you're not there when I need you, you're not at the Individual for trans lives you're not you get what I'm saying when you're not doing those things that trigger my trust then you're not doing the work for me I think about the issues that impact our communities and that overlap with one another so I think about issues like gentrification and how um, you know where I live here in New York City I've witnessed gentrification occur in immigrant immigrant neighborhoods, whether it's um, Flatbush, uh, where there's a massive Caribbean community and West Indian community, or Bed-Stuy, a historically historically Black community, or even some of the ethnic neighborhoods like Chinatown, the Chinatowns are in Flushing. Um, We have to talk about gentrification um, and its impact on our communities. Um, I think about immigration. Um, and how, uh, as Aluchi mentioned, xenophobia continues to wreak havoc, um, I think, on conversations around Black and Asian solidarity, 
um, we have to have like a real clear analysis around how xenophobia impacts both of our communities and how it's used as a wedge issue um, very conveniently to support and to lift up um, um, white supremacy. And I think we also need to talk about the decriminalization of sex work and talk about lifting up sex workers and those that engage in survival economics or in the informal economy and how we can create one, real economic opportunities that just don't allow trans, queer and trans folks to survive, but to actually have access to opportunities to thrive um, and to be able to live safely and securely and not have to worry about where their next paycheck is coming from or where their next meal is coming from. And also to think about like, in as we talk about the decriminalization of sex work, talking about reimagining a world that doesn't fetishize and lift up a carceral state. Those are all great things. And I want to end with that. Thank you all for joining us this evening for this very important conversation. There is something that all of us can do to make it safer for everyone. And so um, please support the work of all of our speakers this evening. And again, just to remind you, we had Andy Mara, who's the executive director for the Transgender Legal Defense Fund, Aluchi Omioga, who's the co-director of BLMP, Black LGBT Migrants Project, Diamond Styles, definitely support the work of Diamond, who's a, uh, the host of the podcast, Marsha's Plate, and the executive director of Black Trans Women, Inc., and Juniper Yoon, who is a program associate for the Transgender District. And now I'd like to welcome John Zipper back from the Commonwealth Club of California, Thank you, Michelle. And thank you again to all of our special guests on tonight's program, The Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. And thanks to all of you watching or listening to us online. Feel free to share this video and podcast with friends and family and others. And you can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe, have a good week, and we'll see you again in person one day. Good night.